Thank you all for coming, and um, thank you for inviting me. It's quite a privilege to be able to do this. Uh, at my university, I am the only one talking about or doing this in public health. So to come to a, uh, an organization like yours where so many people are doing the child health aspect is, is tremendous. Um, I used to be a, a K-12 educator by nature, and that's pretty much how I got into this. I, I taught in the public school system for a little while, and then... Um, I started at Georgia Southern as a temporary instructor teaching K through five methods, how to teach health to elementary kids, to our elementary educators and to our health and PE educators. So that's really what got me into this. And you know, you look at the title here and you know, say what, well you can take this into any uh, context or octave you want as into the kids said what, or did he really actually talk to that many kids? Um, and as we go through, I'll show you. What also why I was interested is I have a little one of my own, and about the time she started sinking her teeth into fruits and vegetables is about the time I started doing this, this study and realizing um, we needed to look at preschool children like, um, like Ed was talking about. So I'm going to give you some background, but I'm really going to focus a lot on the methods because uh, that's really the fun and interesting portion, and we'll zip through some of the results and then some of the implications that I've uh, come out of this assessment, um, why I did this assessment. <clears throat> some of the background... You know, we know, most of you know all this, I, I would say. We know our recommended servings. We know why we should do it. Uh, what we forget is a lot of these precursors start long before children become obese. Uh, unfortunately, our vegetable, fruit and vegetable consumption, only about a third of uh, children are eating the five recommended servings a day. And uh, <clears throat> Ogden et al. has said that 20% of children are at risk before they even get to school age. So this is a preschool age uh, for being obese. So it's a good reason to start uh, with this young population. Uh, most of the research we've seen in the past, it is getting better. Uh, we've seen trends going more towards preschool, but it's mostly school-centered, low parent involvement. Um, that, that in the preschool uh, setting has been a lot of parent reports, and usually a head start. You go to a lot of head start programs to get these, this, uh, this data. You may notice a lot of these uh, interventions for upper elementary uh, ed. And you'll notice that a lot of them are uh, social cognitive theory uh, oriented or grounded, some health belief model, trans-theoretical model, and coordinated school health program. Um, but typically, social cognitive theory has been the uh, grounding force for a lot of uh, fruit and vegetable um, interventions. I, I would say Tom Baranowski, who I know is going to be at your uh, symposium in March, uh, I would attribute a lot of that to him. He's written lots of book chapters and other articles on using social cognitive theory. Uh, for preschool interventions, uh, things that I have identified, Color Me Healthy, uh, this does the behavioral capability aspect, a construct of social cognitive theory. And I'm going to go more into that theory as to for behavior change as this goes on. And uh, also USDA Team Nutrition is um, the Color Me Healthy program. High Five for Kids, this is uh, a parents' as teachers program, um, focusing on those, those uh, parents and looking at tailored messages to parents, trying to reduce coercive t um, parenting and feeding practices towards children. When we look at all these interventions and what we're targeting, it's really important to know what the determinants are. And we've, there's a body of literature and, um, of what these determinants are. <clears throat> For this particular age group, I would say availability, modeling, preference, these are probably the key ones. But one that I was really interested in on this study, and this is what kind of takes it into the direction of my own little uniqueness here, is the outcome expectations and expectancy. This is another social cognitive theory uh, construct. Um, Reynolds et al. had looked at fourth grade children and actually found out that 
along with uh, availability modeling and knowledge, that uh, outcome expectancies, expectancies actually mediated fruit and vegetable consumption. So that was a strong predictor or reason why children would do it. What are those outcome expectancies? Uh, expectancies, things like valuing. So I get strong because I eat fruits and vegetables. And I'll show you some more examples of those as we go along. And why is that so important? Is, well, if you look at the idea of valuing something, of why do we do something, why is it relevant? And it's because it becomes part of our identity. So if we can foster that value in what we call authoritative type of parenting style or teaching style, uh, we will get that and then the kids will do it on their own. The contrary is to do it external reinforcements, and typically people will not do the behavior unless the actual external reinforcement is there. <clears throat> so my purpose was to assess these children and look at the self-reported. As I showed you earlier, a lot of body literature shows parent reports, and we want, I just wanted to see what did the kids say. Everybody doesn't like to work with four-year-olds. Even some of my colleagues were like, eh, that's too much work, just as uh, you mentioned in the earlier reports. But I really wanted to see what they had to say. And I had a young one, and she was pretty bright, so I figured what would it be like in the school setting. So I looked at preschool children, um, their knowledge and preference, uh, messages they recall hearing about related to fruit and vegetable consumption, and then how do they perceive these messages or the outcomes. And that's where those outcome expectations come into, into play. <clears throat> I also wanted to really look at the exploration of how these associate with, um, with each other and then the viability of actually doing tailored messages. Uh, so in other words, if they understand outcome expectations, can we actually do tailored messages to help them? We all hear about branding for McDonald's and all that, but we also hear about, well, Superman eat, eats those, Spider-Man eats those, and that kind of motivates a lot of kids. But what about something internal in them that they might value about playing and other things like this? So four areas of the study that we did. We, it was a pretty big, big uh, undertaking, but I felt like in order to really do it justice, we had to look at the whole food environment. So we have a parent survey. I mean, you have to get their informed consent anyway, so I decided to give them a survey as well. Uh, we look at child consumption, uh, child self-reports, and I did a little bit of parents' uh, child concordance. We'll go into that. Overall, <clears throat> the assessment that I used, we actually did it in a Head Start facility where they did food demos, and we were assessing both parents and the children. So we were using that, and it was uh, grounded in um, a lot of theory with a pre-operational stage of cognitive de development. And we used picture cards, and I'll show you all that as we go along. Don't want to get too ahead of myself. Um, but the biggest point was the rapport building. This study just does not happen unless... Uh, the spring before I started, I spoke with the director. I spent the summer um, getting it all solidified. And then when school started, I was able to talk with the teachers. And it's those teachers that really made a difference. And you'll see why in my response rates. Uh, they bought into it. I kind of took that CBPR mentality, allowed them to give me some ideas, help construct how I was going to actually do some of the data collection. I had my notions of how I wanted to do it. You have to do that for IRB, of course but they actually gave a lot of input on what was going to happen. And this happened throughout the process, and it was actually a three-, four-month process that the data collection occurred over. And then we did the assessment, and then we did all the coding and data um, entry and input, and I had multiple coders, and we used a consensus report uh, approach when we did the actual coding of what children said. It was simply a cross-sectional design now. It was just too big to do anything more than that. Um, and it was grounded in uh, social cognitive theory. That was our guiding theory. 
The schoolhouse, now this seems to have surprised a lot of people, and it surprised me, is that the preschool that I went to had 220 kids in it. It's a very rural population, and it's a very poor um, county. Everybody in all the schools, all the kids in the county, for all levels of school, actually uh, were eligible for free reduced lunch program. So it was just 100% sweeping over. So you can tell that's obviously pretty low, um, low income. Uh, so there were a total of 216 parents of those 220 kids, and I got consent for 91% of them. And that's, I put that on the teachers. They, they were amazing in that. We also did this during the first week of school. So while parents are signing a whole bunch of other forms, they're signing my forms as well. Um, now, what's also amazing is um, the parent questionnaires. I got 172 of those back. So that was actually really good. These parents were actually really community-oriented and involved, so... I was very happy with that. And again, teachers really pushed that as well. And of course, I interviewed about 87% of the kids. So to start off, I wanted to actually get their consumption going to see if any of this actually related to their consumption. And I'll burst everybody's bubble. It didn't. <laughs> and it's probably because part of the design of the study is um, consumption was only done at school and during the lunchtime uh, period. We couldn't do it any other time, but we actually do it during a week they were under CACFP guidelines, so they had to have certain servings a day. But at no other time did they actually have fruit as a snack, or a solid piece of fruit now, mind you, or vegetable as a snack, or at breakfast. It was either a juice um, or some other cookie that went with their snack at that time. So the week that we did this, all of the um, fruit and vegetable was being served at lunch. We used standardized methods, and <coughs> sorry for all of you who actually have had just lunch. I'm sure some of you have done plate waste. And I apologize, I know it's not the most attractive thing, but the great thing about this school is it was an old elementary school, okay? And they actually had a cafeteria, and under CACFP guidelines, they have to do standard servings. So it made it very simple on me that when, uh, before lunch started, I would get a tray. So there's what the tray would look like with all the food serving in it. I would take 10 pitchers. So we would weigh the food, uh, only the fruits and vegetables, mind you. We take out 10%. We calculate 10% increments and take 10% out, and then we take pictures of each increment of 10%. So when I wanted to go back and actually evaluate the child's tray, I had all my reference points. Tom Baranowski, again, developed this, and he had high reliability and validity out of this. He used eight pictures. I used 10, and I highly recommend just using eight. Um, 10 is good because you get very accurate results um, as in how much, and you can even get down to the weight in grams is what we were able to do just by visualizing. But when you do that, your reliability between raters tends to get a little skewed because you have more variability. If you just have four pitchers, well, it's pretty cut and dry. It's either a quarter or half. So the more pitches you have, the less reliability you're going to have. Uh, but in the end, we were able to get um, a kappa value of 0.8 or higher which was really good. So just looking at this, how, if this is 100% here, no food eaten, this is about 10% left, so 90% was eaten. How much applesauce do you think has been eaten here? What would you rate it as? Uh, 20% You're right. So that was, we actually rated this as 80% of it. And then the peas, would you like to take a guess on that? Zero. Absolutely right. So look at that, no training at all, and you're able to do that. So it's a really good model of being pretty accurate. So it was fast, but when you go over 1,000 pictures, it takes a long time. So it was 1,000 pictures of these for this particular plate waste. <clears throat> the next thing we did was the uh, child interview, and I'll get to those results in a little bit, actually. Um, the next part was obviously the child interviews. These happened over um, 18 days, 
and uh, each interview lasted about 10 to 15 minutes. Um, some lasted longer, some lasted a little long, uh, shorter, but most were about 10 minutes. And um, those that lasted longer were pretty interesting. I don't have everything that I put down on what they said. Um, there were picture cards, and at this stage, pre-operational stage of child, uh, cognitive development, kids are able to put a, symbol, uh, uh, a name with a symbol. So my daughter looks at me, it's dad. So they look at a picture, they can say what the picture is. Um, the preference is a little bit more difficult. You can't fake knowledge because it's either you know it or no, don't, but preference, you have to be very careful about how you lead them, uh, and I'll talk about that. The next part was the open-ended questionnaire, and this I modeled off of some uh, child witnesses that they use in court cases and how you actually talk with children and be able to recreate uh, a scene and allow them to just talk and give us the information without giving any leading information to them. And that's how we did the recalled messages. I used scripted, uh, a structured script, so everything was the same for every child, and we did lots of notes. Well, since they only said about five or ten words, so it was pretty easy for note-taking, but anything I couldn't hear, I had a wonderful one of these that picked up just about everything. Uh, so it was really helpful to go back and do that. So let's talk about how I actually did this. As I said, a lot of rapport building before. Uh, I was in the school. We did the plate waste. So if you figure first week of August, and then about the third week of August, fourth week of August, we did the plate waste. I had been in the school at least three days a week for that whole time. And then about mid-September is when I actually started the interviews. And by mid-September, kids were going around giving me high fives. Uh, you know, I've been playing basketball on the playground with them, uh, reading stories with them in the classrooms, eating lunch with them, helping along. So I was a teacher as well. I mean, it helped that I was a teacher in the past, but to them, I was just another teacher. So even the, the teachers there were saying, hey, Andrew, you could probably get anything out of these kids now, except for the ones that were always quiet. I would go to a classroom, and I would ask the teacher, okay, who's next on the list? And I would ask the child, would you like to play the picture card game? And they all got famous for this to the point where I didn't even have to ask. I would just come in the room, and somebody was volunteering. Um, now, it was very important that I train the teachers not to say anything like, hey, you want to help Mr. Hansen? You want to help? Because that would be somewhat of a coercion on the teacher's port. So we really had to make sure it's like, would you like? So that child assent was very important how we got that. And, you know, obviously the stunt doubles here are a little smaller than the life like me and the child here. But this is essentially what it looked like. We'd walk into the room, and I would let them choose a sticker, and that gave me time to set up my recorder and to get the, um, the forms ready. And I would practice with it first. I would tell them what we were going to do. I'd say, okay, the objective of this game is to name, the, name what you see, the picture. Tell us me if you like it or don't like it, what you think about it, and then we'll talk a little bit more after that. So I practiced it first with two really uh, out-of-context pictures. One was a car. So I show them a picture of a car. Everybody knows what a car is. And I said, okay, what is this? And they said, car. And it's like, well, what do you think about cars? Now, if you like it, you're going to put it over with a smiley face. If you don't, you're going to put it over by the you know, frowny face. And if you're not sure what you think, we're going to put it here in the middle. And it was very important to instruct them about the question mark and what is it when we don't know. And so most of the kids put the uh, picture of the car over here and the, the like. Next was a picture of people, just random people. I pulled a picture off the Internet. I said, what is this a picture of? And the kids would say, well, it looks like people, friends, family. Okay, great. So what do you think of these people? And they look at me. Uh, I was like, right, well, you don't know. Have you met them? No. So you don't know what you think. Do you, don't know, do you don't know if you like them? No. Okay, so that's what you're going to do. If you don't know, it's going to go here. So it was highly encouraged because I didn't want to have this leading format for the preference where, all right, 
Here's a picture. Do you like it or don't like it? And they had to choose. If they never tried it, which a lot of them hadn't, we needed to put it somewhere. So that was a great practice round to get to that point. So and it, when you look at my data and the number of never tries, I felt like we had a pretty good uh, uh, valid way of doing this. And as we, uh, as we went through, so let's look at um, apples are in Sully's hand right now. So they would say, okay, what is this picture of apples? A lot of them would say, hey, Apples, I like that. So I didn't even have to go into the preference uh, aspect. They just say right away. And then I let them sort it. I would sort it for some of them. Some of them just took it out of my hand. They sorted it. It just depended on the, um, the uh, anxiety or the um, uh, level of um, excitement of the child. And I never suppressed that. The reason was because, you know, in the, as Erickson says, you're in a point of initi um, initiative and guilt. And I never wanted them to feel guilty about being able to do something that they took initiative to do. So if they wanted to play with the cards, they, they could, but if they started bending them, then obviously that's not good. We talk about those rules in a second. Cantaloupes there, you can see that's a little harder. So they look at that, and they say, what is this? And I don't know. Um, they couldn't name it. So would you like some help? I said, okay, well, this is called a cantaloupe. Have you ever tried one of these? Have you ever tasted one of these? And they say, no. Okay, so we're going to put that here. So I always said, have you ever tried or have you tasted? I never asked, have you liked, do you like this? Or do you not like this? Because if you say one or the other first, chances are you might lead them into that direction. And that's how that went. So this went on for about 11 fruits, 12 vegetables. And um, after they were done this, we went into the open-ended format questions. And this was really great because by the time we got to that stage, I already got a lot of information out of them. They had said some stuff about the home environment, uh, about uh, messages that were talked about at home, about what parents said about the fruit or vegetable. But what I wanted to do next was I asked them, okay, so let's pretend we're at home. You're at, it's mealtime. And I said, who cooks for you? Again, don't want to make any assumptions about who's because a lot of them had grandparents looking after them, not parents. They didn't have parents. They didn't have dads. So I asked, okay, well, who cooks for you? And most of them did say their mothers. I said, okay, well, let's pretend mommy's, mom's bringing uh, dinner to the table. Let's pick a couple of these vegetables that you have put here that you know about. And we'll put like broccoli and carrots there. So what does she tell you about vegetables? And then we go from there. And the structured script was set so it would be very broad and open that way. And then I kind of give them a little help as I go down, but not really, no, no longer leading. It was kind of like, all right, so what happens when we eat fruits and vegetables? What happens if we don't eat fruits and vegetables? So some of these um, more of fill-in-the-blank type questions, but still not leading them to any direction, at least trying not to. And... Keep in mind, though, as we did this, if they said something at the top of the structured script and it was at the bottom said again, it only counted once when I did the data collection. So that, that cleared out any um, doubling up on data. Now, some of you have talked about this. Yes, keeping their focus was obviously going to be an issue. But when we did this, uh, there was stuff in the, um, the library where I did this. We didn't do it in the classroom because it was too noisy, so we went to the library, uh, which was beside the office, so a very uh, safe space, and it was a very familiar space. And uh, the reason why I became so popular is kids always, would, as they were going out to recess, and they did staggered classes to go to recess and lunch because there's so many kids, is they would see me, and they, they see the interview going on, and they thought it was fun playing with the picture cards. So that's why I got so popular. So I was always in view of them but they would get distracted. There was other stuff in this library that they wanted to do. So it was very important that we always talk about the school rules apply. We set the expectations and social expectations too. You know, when they started bending the cards, I told you about that, is I just try to redirect and say, well, wait a second now, 
if you break those, can we use them anymore? No. And started trying to use these very positive language, positive reinforcement. Yeah, you can play with the cards, but let's make sure these other people have to use them. Um, and then, of course, redirecting. Sometimes they start playing this game. Well, I'd play that game with them for a few minutes or a few seconds, and then I try to focus that game back into my game without them really knowing that I did that. And that usually worked fairly well. Fatigue also became a problem. You think about how many interviews I did, 192. The teachers were laughing at me. They said, well, you're on um, number 100 here, so uh, how many more do you have to do? And it's like, well, <laughs> 190, 220? Well, we're getting there. So I set a realistic schedule. Obviously, this would be a lot better. And in my implications in the end, I'd say, this is a really viable assessment is what I figured out. Teachers can do this. They do this anyway. The question is just finding time in the whole broad-based curriculum that they have to cover. But have flexibility to adapt. I did limited days per week, so I always took some time off. I staggered throughout the day with breaks, and they had a staggered schedule anyway, so that helped. And then I helped children. I always went back and I remember why I'm there. So I would go and actually help the children and play with the children and something else. Get my mind off of this, especially if things weren't going very well. When you were looking at those picture cards in the interview, you probably noticed that the apples, there was a red one and a, and a, um, a yellow one, a green one. That was really important too. This would help with recognition and recall as well. Some kids only get the cut up pineapple um, in the cafeteria, and maybe that's all they can afford. Many kids never saw it. They said, what is that by, by the pineapple? I said, that's a pineapple too. That's actually pineapple. I don't know. They didn't know that. So to have multiple forms of the fruit actually or vegetable helped increase recognition, the way it was cut, the way it was um, you know, uh, shown to them. So that would help with that recognition. Some of these down here are some of the harder ones. You'll notice that uh, the squash zucchini here, they uh, constantly made, called these cucumbers, the uh, collard greens and uh, the greens there, they would call ca cabbage or spinach. And then uh, also the uh, plums over there, they would call those uh, apples a lot. And so that is obviously prototyping there. The reference fruit that is round and red is an apple. And so that's why they call it an apple. They did that with peaches too. And I'd say about 25% of the kids did that with plums and maybe about 15% did with peaches. So that's going to be an implication when it comes to my knowledge and preference um, categories. Keep that one in mind. So analysis, we did just descriptives, some income differences, and then some associations. And uh, if we have time, I did do a regression, and I already gave you the answer to that one, but um, we'll look at that. But we chose, I chose the uh, 20,000 barrier because... This is was the poverty line. The poverty line for a family of three was about 18,000. Family of four was about 22,000. Most of the parents in there had either one child or two children. And so that's why we choose that. It was also the median household income of the, uh, ch the population that I had. Because as you can see here, most, most people were under 20,000. If I did any other increment, it just wasn't going to work. So this skewed my data, well, the analysis a little bit. You had a um, higher sample on the lower end, uh, below 20,000, and not such a big sample on the higher end. Uh, I did do 10,000 increment, $10,000 increments, but there is no way if you do that, you're just diluting your sample pool too much. Uh, half and half of, of white and black, most of the um, uh, respondents were mothers, uh, fairly young age, and you can see that their uh, college or their education was uh, fairly low. 
Looking at uh, the results for some of the parents in the parent survey, this was really interesting, their knowledge. So how many fruits and vegetables do you need to eat for good health? Well, only about uh, less than 30% could tell me five or more. So that wasn't really good. Uh, their consumption, less than half met the fruit guidelines, and less than 30% met the vegetable guidelines. Self-reported, mind you, it was a National Cancer Institute survey um, that I used. Uh, so obviously valid, reliable, but it's still um, self-reports. Now this is something we need to keep in mind for later with these results, is the availability. Um, those who are in higher income households had more vegetables available. Fruits were, this was statistically significant, fruits were a little bit more as well, but overall higher income households had more availability. So that may play into some of the answers we find with the children. The sample for children uh, was about half and half, boys and girls. And we had white, uh, half and half again with, for the race. And their average age was 4.4, okay, four years old. So pretty young. So you can imagine what it's like talking to um, 192 four-year-olds. I had some interesting stories. If you want to hear some of those, they, they avoid toiletry issues as well. So we, we, we can go into that later. <laughs> um, and the screaming teachers coming in. Uh, we got to take this child back. So um, the child consumption. So this goes back to our plate waste, getting into the child results here. You'll notice that um, what they ate is right here in the percent consumed. I have percent consumed here instead of, uh, it's always easier to do that than actually, I actually have weight as well. But uh, the total fruits and vegetables, they consumed about half. Uh, the average, but without potatoes included, it was about half as well. Um, about half potatoes. Fruit, they definitely liked their fruit. And you can see the actual numbers here. And I like to point out oranges, green beans, and peas. And give you, keep those in mind when we get to our, our preference uh, portion. And why it's so important, I feel like, to do a really holistic view, assessment of what's going on. When we break that down to income, you know, you always hear that higher income kids eat more fruits and vegetables. Well, they may have access to more, but in this case, the lower income kids were eating more. And you can notice for the fruit, it was extreme difference. Um, potatoes, excuse me, fruit and vegetable, uh, not including potatoes, and also fruit and vegetables uh, overall were also. The only thing that the higher, higher income kids were eating more of were potatoes, but not a whole lot. So now some of the results from the knowledge section here. Uh, the top four uh, fruits and vegetables that they could name. And you can see that obviously with vegetables, that sort of goes down as we go. And that was really interesting to see. And then we look at the income again. Those in higher income households, you think back to the availability of fruits and vegetables. Well, you could theorize, well, if you have more available, that means you have more exposure. means you should be able to name more. And I forgot to mention, knowledge was based on can you identify the fruit or vegetable. Okay, so it's just being able to name it. Um, <clears throat> and this was uh, obviously a, a statistical difference, about th probably about three more on average that they could name. The preference, on the other hand, was reversed. Those who are in from lower income households, less than 20,000, were saying that they liked more. So this is that sort of conundrum. I was like, well, how does this happen? Well, if you go back to those plums and those peaches, that being misnamed and doing the prototyping is what it's called, where that reference, um, reference fruit, they would, that would happen a lot. They would know and they'd say, oh, I, I know what that is. Or they would just say, oh, I really like that, but they couldn't name it. And that's because recall of the actual name is a lot more difficult than recognition. 
And that's actually in the social psychology literature that'll tell you that. So when you have that happening, don't dismiss it. It's probably they know, but they just can't name it. All right. So that may be a little, that's a bit of a limitation on this way of assessing knowledge. <clears throat> So looking back again, that would describe it. And that tells you again why I needed multiple forms of the fruits or vegetables. And then again, why, uh, for example, the plums were the prototype um, uh, fruit. So let's look at what they said. This is what I was mostly interested in. And this is where I'm going to give you more background into the social cognitive theory. There are lots of constructs on the social cognitive theory. The old version was about 11. There's been some new iterative versions going on. Um, I used an older version, and uh, Baranowski wrote a chapter in Glanz uh, Theory uh, book, and he, I'm sure many of you might have used that. But I was basically going from a lot of his definitions and other definitions throughout the literature to get the definitions that I used to operationalize any of the messages into each construct. So these aren't just arbitrarily my definitions. Uh, they're fairly well grounded back in the, the literature. So the environment, the physical external stimuli, and the situation, well, how the child would perceive that. Well, the only two that would fit under here are what we call command prompts and positive prompts. I'm sure most of you know these. At least command prompts, they're imperative statements basically telling you what to do. Even things like, um, it, none of them said that, but eat your vegetables, please. Um, Galloway did a study where even when you're doing soft tone, eat your vegetables, please, kids would actually get annoyed with that. That's called a prompt, and that's obviously counterproductive and not a best practice. Positive prompts, on the other hand, have some kind of modeling. And this is kind of more of my, um, my own uh, aspect on this because it's not really telling them what to do, but it's showing that modeling aspect. So obviously the, uh, the parents should be eating while this was going on. It could still probably be uh, considered a prompt, depending on who you're looking at. Negative outcome expectations. The outcome is exclusively the result of not engaging in the behavior, the desired behavior. And the only one that was listed at this is you're wasting. And I'll get into the, the reasons for how it got, this is the only one that got categorized as this. Remember, the outcome expectation is the outcome. The expectancy is you have some value for that outcome. I like that outcome. I assessed value when I was in the interviews. Not only did they say, okay, what, what do your parents say? Well, they make you, well, let's pull one up, you'll like it, you'll get healthy. These are the things. So really picture the kids saying this and they're remembering what their parents tell them. So this is the outcome. Now I listed them as outcome expectancies because then I would ask the children, well, what do you think about that? We go back to our preference aspect. Well, what do you think about being able to run fast? What do you think about getting strong? And then asking them to put a smile or a, a frown on that. So that's why I thought I could, based on their answers, I was able to put them as an expectancy because I was getting the impression that the kids did understand and they did like it. And I'll show you some actual um, uh, associated expectancies they put with it. The negative outcomes are, well, if you don't engage in the behavior, but you value that not happening to you. So we don't grow. Ooh, I don't like the idea of not growing, so I still have some value on them. Uh, have to see the doctor. Most kids don't want to, do they? At least my daughter didn't after she got shots or had to go to the hospital for asthma. She was off the doctor for a while. So these are some of the specific, specific uh, expectancy associations that they said after I asked them, well, what do you think about this? Okay, I like it. Why? And they start saying things like, 
well, I can drive the car. I could go to my sister's school. And now, granted, yes, this could be still something that their parents say. But the alternative is, well, what if the child does know and they're making this association? Well, this is good news for me if I want to do my next study of tailored messages. I can do something. Okay, what do these children value? Tailor a message and get the teacher to give it to them. So that's kind of where I was going with this. One of my favorites, of course, on this, compete at my brother. So those were some of those expectancy associations. Kids also said positive reinforcements. Um, these were controlled by an external person, and the message had to be clearly indicate that the addition of a desirable stimulus or reward. Now, something like good job is actually a best practice. You can go onto the Gretchen Swanson um, Center for Nutrition, and they have some nice little videos, and they'll say, hey, good job, you know, working with the vegetables. But everything else here, these are actually considered coercive and not a best practice, and you shouldn't be doing them. Um, you know, using food as a reward, stuff like that. Negative reinforcements, this required the removal of undesirable stimulus, threat. So this, this was the threat. You'll get in trouble if you don't eat your fruits and vegetables. So you, it wasn't actually happening that you were getting a spank, but the threat of having a spanking was there. And keep in mind, obviously, this is, these look like punishments, but they can't be punishments because if it was a punishment, I want them to stop the behavior. I want them to do the behavior, so it has to be a reinforcement. So that's an assumption that we made that the, the, the parents were trying to do when we get these messages from the kids. Reciprocal determinism, this is a great one. I surprised any of the kids actually even said this. Uh, I asked for a plum, I ate it, my mama bought more for me. So it's kind of like this whole circle of what's going on. And that was really neat to see. Um, not many of the kids, but about five or ten started saying something like that. And this is just one of the examples. And then behavioral capability talks more about their skills and their knowledge. You can meet them like this, eat them uh, when you're hungry. So it was nice to hear some of these messages because now you're really focusing in on some best practices here. And those are behavioral capability. Let's look at how many messages were actually said. Well, the good news was positive outcome expectancies, over half of the kids said these. This is the most used message. Now, when you're looking at that number, that's 84 kids said at least one of these. Okay, um, And in messages altogether, at least 155 kids told me one message. So this was pretty cool. I was getting a, a good number of messages from them. The command prompts, not so good. Remember those who go back, these are more imperative statements, about 30%. Negative outcome expectancies, a uh, little 25%. And then positive reinforcements and negative reinforcements, just a little under 20%. Stated at least one of those types of message. When we start splitting them up by income again, here we have the uh, higher income households saying more messages. And if you look, the messages that we want to be said, we want to have said, those ones that have value base. Uh, and, you know, theory on that could just simply be, well, if they have more available in the household, they have more to talk about. Uh, higher income households tend to use more of this type of language. Some of the literature shows that lower income households tend to use more coercive or command style authoritarian type um, parenting styles, feeding styles. So that certainly gives us an insight into uh, what the kids are saying about the parents or what's going on at home and what the food environment is like. I decided to see how these correlated uh, with each other. 
And I noticed that knowledge correlated again with outcome expectancies and negative, and then total messages as well. And again, that would kind of lay back into the theory that obviously if they have more availability, this would make sense. Keep in mind those alert values are pretty small. Okay, so we're not going to make any causation or conclusions from this. The command prompts, though, um, this was for the less than $20,000 households, and that makes sense again. If typically lower income uh, use this type of language, well, I guess that would make sense. Um, disliking fruits and vegetables had a greater expression of negative outcome expectancies and negative outcome expectations. Now, my theory on this one, when I was talking with a lot of the kids, what would happen or what was happening is, oh, I really hate that. I don't like that vegetable. And it's like, yeah, it makes you sick. And so any of the outcome expectations or expectancies that were coming out, some of them were, you know, if they didn't like it, it couldn't possibly be good for you. So that could, you know, there could be some skewness going on there. That doesn't make any sense. But it's, a good, it's good to know that uh, so that way you're not being fooled by something that isn't there, actually there. And then liking fruits and vegetables was related to um, negative reinforcements. Well, this could simply be a factor, and this was interesting because this is a higher income. Now, when I, I've been saying higher and lower income, um, but when you look, $20,000 isn't a lot of money, and that's actually a, an implication that we'll talk about at the end. But negative reinforcements, I mean, let's face it. Uh, if a child really values their TV, their shows, uh, it can be a very powerful tool, this negative reinforcement. And if it actually gets a child to try it and they start liking it, so maybe that's what's going on here. Now, this was fun. We looked at the parent-child concordance because I had a whole lot of stuff from the parents. And I wanted to see what the parents said about their preference compared to the child's preference. Well, typically, uh, parents were more likely to uh, prefer something over the, vet, the, the children based on the parent's viewpoint. The only difference were uh, bananas, applesauce, and cantaloupe, where in these cases, um, the parents said that the child would like those a lot more, but the cantaloupe um, would like them a lot less. When we look at the parent's self-reports compared to the child's self-reports, um, children less likely to report liking a fruit or vegetable than the parent. The only exceptions were uh, blueberries and celery. Those were the only two that they said, children said that they liked more than parents did. And that's just comparing their self-reported preference, uh, preference side by side. And this was the fun one when you get to compare what the parents said that their child liked and then what the child actually did like. There were a few there that were skewed. Um, typically, stuff that may not be uh, in the household as much because not many of them actually had celery, bell peppers, and squash. So it must be stuff that parents don't really offer that much. So they're just kind of guessing if I like it or I don't like it, my child won't like it. But children were more likely to say they liked those, less likely to say they liked these, which was interesting because those you would expect them to like. The next step was to look at some of the parent modeling and how this could be, because if we look back at those determinants, it's really important as an as a aspect of consumption among children. We looked at the parenting practices. So one of them, the two that I wanted to look at were show a child, I enjoy eating fruits and vegetables, so that modeling aspect. Well, of the parents who said that, well, that's great. 80% said they did that, but two-thirds of them didn't meet the vegetable guidelines, three servings a day, and then uh, half of them didn't meet the fruit guidelines. 
So it's kind of like, do as I say, not as I do. And then the child's um, fruits and vegetables make you strong and healthy. Well, again, this was great. This is one of those positive outcome expectancies. And 90% of them said that. But then if you look at those who said that, did they actually meet the guidelines? Uh, no, they didn't. They're still struggling there. Keep in mind that these are self-reported. So that um, tends to possibly under possibly underestimate how much they're actually eating. Looking at some of the strengths of this study, uh, it was theory-driven, social cognitive theory, and that's been the backbone of a lot of fruit and vegetable and obesity studies. A lot of teacher cooperation. I can't stress this enough. These teachers were outstanding. I mean, teachers at any school are outstanding, but there's something about this rural community where there was such a tight-knit group. And that's something I also found about is that you always hear that, um, you know, yeah, they didn't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, only about a half. There could be a lot of reasons for that. It could be that, well, they just had breakfast, uh, you know, not two hours ago. It could be that when you look at how it's prepared, it's really yucky. It actually really is. I mean, you saw some of those pictures, the peas and stuff. Um, but in a rural community, I also heard some of the st students talking about grandmothers uh, growing fruits and vegetables in their garden. Uh, and there may be some protective factors here with this rural community and tight-knit. And they were very... Um, good at getting together and making things happen for me and helping me along. I earned a lot of familiarity and trust. I can't stress this enough when you're working with kids. If you can do that, you're going to have a lot um, better outcome when you actually try to get um, your um, data out of the kids. And multiple data collection points, you know, getting a nice holistic view of the, the uh, food environment is a great way to, and I, I've noticed that, I, you know, talking... I would have changed this, uh, this whole PowerPoint actually after talking to most of the professors this morning, uh, simply because how wonderful everybody's looking at the whole food environment. They're doing, you know, as I said, I'm the only one in my, my department doing this, but so many people are doing this here. Um, you know, there's a lot of other aspects I would have liked to have shown and, and, and highlighted, but obviously for time purposes, we're, we're almost out. Um, the social and cognitive skills is a bit of a limitation, so you have to know those. For example, the recall and recognition, the prototyping, and simply social skills. Some of the things these children were saying, I would go to the director and say, do you know this is going on? Yeah, we know. Okay, good. Because that's kind of like a risk factor for you as a researcher. You have to be careful because in a teacher setting, in a, child, in a school setting, if there is signs of you know, not, things not going well at a home, there are some legal obligations that have to occur. So the director and I had an understanding of what was going to happen and make sure I wasn't caught off guard or by surprise. Uh, child focus is obviously a limitation. Uh, the use of social cognitive theory. What you saw here is not everything the children said. So there was some other neat stuff that they said about the environment that you know is not in there. And of course, I've been mentioning about self-reports all this time. I believe that this assessment is viable. Yes, it was exhausting for one person, but this is pretty easy for teachers to do. Um, with flashcards and to just get an idea, an assessment of what they like, what they don't like, and then be able to then implement something, a very uh, simple intervention that can help in maybe child fruit and vegetable consumption. The broader picture, the child perspective of the feeding environment, better understanding of all the influences. Um, I think that's super important. I think everybody here uh, at this uh, university understands that. The high income, low income issue, 20000 is not a lot of money. And when you look at the messages, they kind of taper off with each increment of, um, I don't have that chart with me, but they actually did this. It tapered off or went up with each 
$10,000 increment. And why that was happening, who knows, but we always talk about high SES, low SES, and sometimes we might have to even think about looking at within a low SES range, within the high SES range, and doing more, um, more looking at that as well. I would like to do a controlled experiment. Take these messages, like I told you, tailor them. Uh, it seems to be the hot thing these days, tailoring messages. Um, we've always known that if you've ever been into uh, fitness instruction, you know, everything is different. You know, nutrition, it's different for every person. Fitness, it's different for every person. Uh, it's, it shouldn't be any different for a child who's going to eat fruit and vegetables. They're all going to have different reasons for eating them. And it definitely needs to be longitudinal because there's a lot of research that shows uh, at three to five, they categorize and preference uh, reasons uh, for preference of uh, fruits and vegetables are different than five to seven and then up to ten. Uh, motivation style. Now you notice that with the messages they get, we get a good idea of the fact that some of them are getting an authoritarian household and others are getting a nice authoritative household. Well, if you're trying to do an intervention or if I was going to do an intervention here and I'm starting to use best practices and they're not working, it could just be that the child's not used to that. And that's something that I need to keep in consideration for my, uh, my intervention. And I was thinking, okay, well, what really does this all do? And I had to think back to my teacher's day, and if, if nothing else, it's really informative for the teachers. And it can really help them um, encourage their children when they want to and teach them how to encourage properly because we know that in schools, behavior is a huge issue. And if we can have some uh, assistance for teachers, uh, that's always, always good. And if you have any questions, I hope your fortunes are full of fruits and vegetables. The irony of this is that on the, um, I think it was the, the week of my defense, my dissertation defense, I got this fortune in one cookie. And I was like, okay, that's going to my PowerPoint slide. So, <laughs> anyway. so it was a really fast overview of what I did, and I hope, uh, hope it was interesting for you all. If you have any questions, oh, I did promise you one thing. I told you there wasn't a whole lot. I did do a multivariate analysis. I am doing, still doing more analysis to see what's going on. Because um, that parent survey is really tripping me up with a few things, and we had to re, uh, recode things a little bit differently. But at the higher income levels, the only predictor of fruit and vegetable consumption at school was availability at home. That was the only predictor. So that makes sense. But what's cool is this is now consumption at school, all right? And then consumption at school for the lower income households, we had availability, the parenting practice of reciprocal determinism. Not surprising. Um, fruits, vegetables in the home in the last week. Excuse me, that's availability. Oh, excuse me, preference. I just misread that, didn't it? Uh, so for this one, it was just the number of the preference, the number they liked. My apologies. Here, we had availability as well. So that, again, makes sense. And then child-reported message behavioral capability. So the knowledge and ability to be able to actually use these. So those are come some neat predictors of what was going on in this study. Thank you all very much for having me and listening. I really appreciate the talks I've had with the professors before this, and um, I, I look forward to, to possibly collaborating in the future. So thank you all. Any questions? I'm a teacher, so I'm always accepting of input. <laughs> yes? So uh, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with um, if you were to do some tailored messages. Yeah. Which of these many data points would you be focusing on to kind of inform the kinds of messaging that you would be delivering? Okay. So I'd probably ask both teachers and parents, 
and I would ask the teachers, particularly the teachers, because this would be uh, something that would be delivered at school. And teachers are cool. Uh, parents are not. <laughs> so so we, we need to, and I have already experienced that. So, um, and my daughter's only four and a half. But I would ask them, well, what are their favorite things and activities to do? And we'd have a list, and we can make up that list. And based on this list of their activities that they like to do, we pick the ones that obviously diet will obviously affect. So if drawing, for example, is something like, well, you need your eyesight or fine motor skills. So we can talk about carrots will make your eyes better. You know, some of the kids even said that. And you tailor that message into uh, storytelling that they do at group time, or you tailor it into a message that they might get before lunch. And that would be delivered. And you have to be careful how much you do this. Because I really think that if you do it more than once a week, you're going to start getting into this sort of prompting and the kids will actually not like it, even though it's a positive outcome expectancy. So maybe once or twice a week. I don't have any basis or ground on that other than literature on prompting, but I don't have any literature on the outcome expectancy. This is kind of my novel sort of aspect of going. So that's the way I would take that. And obviously with that, I would need to know about the child preference. I need to know child consumption. We'd have to do another plate waste over the course of a week, see what happened there and maybe compare it to another um, intervention to see if there's any differences there. So, but it's really working backwards from the positive outcome expectancies and then making links to yes. healthy foods that they are currently eating. Right, so we have the theory, we know what we would like for them to say, but we have to see, okay, which of those outcome expectancies does the child uh, value, and then work backwards from there. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's why, you know, always look it into small groups, one class, two teachers, 22, 11 per teacher. It, it can be managed if you do it well, but you're absolutely right. You can do a group. But I feel like, again, if we go back to the, the theory of everything's personal and individualized. Um, if you use the message, you could throw out the message um, to everybody, Spider-Man, Superman eats these, or you'll be able to run faster and dunk the basketball. But also at the same time, your hair will be prettier because some, you know, some of the girls were saying that. They value different things. You'll be able to go to school with your sister. But we won't know these unless you actually get it from the kids. Uh, so we need to get that all from the kids first and then give it back out. But you're, it could be done that way. Uh, but I feel like with the personal um, aspect of it, it might actually help a little bit more. Yes? But, but related to that, I was thinking about some work we did in Mexico where this was with adult women, but there were enough commonalities in the way women thought about things that one could uh, choose some scripted messages mm -hmm. that, that could work in this part of this project. So I guess in relation to the question, as you look at the way in which children responded, were there some places where you could see enough commonality that yeah. it would be worthwhile investing there so you don't have to tailor it for every child? Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's something that I have to divulge into more is that tailored message literature, but you're absolutely right, because I never, I didn't say, a lot of these messages, uh, multiple kids would say those messages, so you're absolutely right, yeah. Um, you, you could do it in a group time, a story time aspect. That would definitely work. Yes? So even if the kids learn to value fruit and vegetable consumption, it's the parents that ultimately create the home environment for food, so how do you plan on reaching the parents through the tailored messages? 
mm -hmm. to kind of create this environment where kids are able to eat the fruits and vegetables that now they're valuing. Right, and that's a great question because even if you do send the Taylor message home, what if they can't afford the fruits and vegetables? And that's the conundrum of all interventions. Um, you know, I read a study about all the downfalls of obesity interventions, and it basically comes down to one of those. I think um, someone named Taylor, I can't remember her first name, but Taylor out of University of Toronto, she did exactly that, is that you can't expect people to do these interventions if they don't have the money to do it. You have to basically fund the whole thing and then find out how to make it sustainable. So that's definitely a challenge. So as a teacher, I'm looking at, well, we may not be able to help at home. Parents are. We'd like to do that whole, I want to do that whole um, circle. But if I can at least do it in a school where they have breakfast, they have lunch, they have snack, uh, there's a huge influential environment there between peers and teachers. And when you think about the hours spent um, at school as well, um, some kids are at home after school programs as well, are there for eight hours a day. The waking moments with the parents is maybe sometimes three, three hours, four hours. Uh, so they're both valuable, but you, you hit a, a true topic. And honestly, I, I'd have to, again, collaborate with people for ideas on that and how to do that. We'd have to assess and figure it out. I did my master's work at Kansas State University, mm -hmm. and we were working with preschoolers for an intervention. So we did something similar to your messages, um, the tailored messages, but we taught kids how to ask their parents for fruits and Excellent. Vegetables. So, I mean, if you want any of those resources. Yeah, I would love it. So you're working on the self-efficacy aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. Okay, cool. Did you make any uh, analysis by gender? I did, actually. No differences. No differences. Not, not in how much they ate, what they said, nothing. So, yeah, I did do that, which was surprising. Let me just follow up. The, the question that was asked here, I, you answered in terms of um, resource limitations, but I was just wondering, what if, what if the parents... I don't know the right terms here, but if the parents' expectations or preferences or whatever it is are not in concert with the child's, mm -hmm. then even if they have the resources, they, they may not do it. Right. I, I agree fully. And, um, you know, if you have the type of parenting style or feeding practices, an authoritative versus authoritarian, it just may not work. It, it may not even be viable. So that's, again, you know, why assessing the whole environment is ideal, so you now have a baseline of where to go, and then you can sort of intervene from there. Would you not agree? Yeah. yeah. Made me think of. I can send you this paper. We did an observational study in a farmers market, and one of the things we observed a lot was children prompting parents to buy something or to try it, mm -hmm. where the parent wouldn't have probably done it on their own, but they were responsive to the child. That would be great. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Now, I say the self-report's a limitation, but it's kind of accepted in the 24-hour recalls that this is... And that's what you're doing. Yes, okay. yeah. Essentially it is, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, yeah.